We've been looking at the story of Exodus, and, and yes, it's the story of God redeeming and rescuing His people through whom the Savior would come, but an even bigger deal than that is that Jesus said that the entire Old Testament actually points towards Him. That, that through these historical events that are not just like moral stories that were written for us to figure out right and wrong, but through these actual events, we're supposed to see that God had ordained both through history, right, that we would also see pictures of what Jesus is like in those events. So last week, we saw the finality through which God rescued his people uh, in the Red Sea crossing, right, that they no longer again would have to fear their oppressors hunting them down. And also, God was convenient enough to leave this sea between them and Egypt that it would be, right, kind of a little inconvenient for them to run back to Egypt when they felt like it, which oddly enough, they do at times wish that they were like back in slavery. I don't know, that's weird. But uh, you and I actually, before we judge them, aren't all that different, right, since coming to Jesus you can be sure there's times when you and I in our hearts, right, are just like, man, remember those times, those good old days before Jesus, right, when I used to, right, do all of these things and I, right, whatever it might be, we, we might have that mentality. And so God has rescued them. The sea closes. They sing a song of worship to God, right? They know that he is the Lord. And it's actually like the events that we're going to look at today are literally like a month or two after their, their people being rescued, right? The 10 plagues, the Red Sea, all of that. It's within a couple of months. And you might think like, man, if that happened in your life, how strong your faith would be, right? Like if you saw God like part the sea and let you walk through with your family to freedom, right? You might be like, man, if God did that for me, Sure, I would like, I would live my whole life so strong for the Lord, but man, the Bible actually doesn't paint the human heart in that great a light, that it's actually even within a month or two, how quickly we can go back to our own ways and our own desires. And so uh, one of the things that God does peculiarly is he actually has them spend some time in this wilderness, this desert place. All right, and uh, so we're going to actually read about God's miraculous provision for his people during the season. They're no longer slaves, so they're, they're unemployed, uh, right? They don't have that, <laughs> that job that they used to have, uh, and now they're just like in the wilderness. And uh, so, so I'm going to skip over this one passage in Exodus 15 where God actually leads them out from the Red Sea into the desert of Shur. They come to this place of bitter water. And, right, they're complaining about that. They can't drink bitter water. And so God actually tells Moses, like, hey, there's this log over here. Put it in the water. It'll make the water sweet. So it's kind of unusual, but God provides for them that way. Uh, and so they end up moving on from that. Verse 27, though, it says, After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the o oasis of Elim, Elam. All right, that sounds, oasis sounds nice, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there beside the water. All right, like, now I want you to think, like, that actually sounds pretty good, right? Like, God's given them a little vacation from all that hard work and slavery they were doing. It's like, hey, you deserve a little retreat at this beautiful oasis that I've got for you, 70 palm trees. And, and think about how easy it would have been 
for God who is, right, omnipotent and all-powerful, that he could have literally just like, this could have been his plan to provide for their needs. Or, right, maybe on their journey, maybe he could have just stationed these little oases one day apart from each other. And so you'd, like, camp out this beautiful place, go for a little hike during the day, and then camp out again at this other beautiful spot, right? God literally could have done that if he wanted to. And he knew that this was his plan, right? He knew that they would have the need for water and, and food. Uh, he's, he's not, like, ignorant of that fact. Uh, but instead, he actually has them regularly spend time in places where there is not enough natural resources for them to meet their own needs. It's kind of weird, right? Like, you, you, it's, it's unusual. So, Exodus 16, verse 1. It says, then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for sin there is not linked to what we think about in terms of sin. Uh, they're not the same. But, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? The Holy Spirit could have had some intention with, you know, the English as well. Who, who knows? But whatever. Uh, so they, they journey into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai, and there they arrived on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. All right, so within a month, within seeing God do all of these miraculous things, and there too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron, right? Moses and Aaron were the ones that God chose to work through to deliver his people. Verse 3, they said, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt... Have you ever prayed that? No, probably not, right? <laughs> like, and actually, they're not even really praying. They're just complaining. Uh, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. Man, if only, uh, right? <laughs> there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Man, guys, remember slavery? It was all you could eat. Man, that was the life, right? And I, I think they're looking back, like, they're only a month out, but they're looking back to, like, these... 400 years of slavery, generations of slavery with a little bit of nostalgia, but they're like, man, ah, I really hope God puts us in slavery again, right? Like, that's what I would want. Maybe God will kill me in slavery too. Uh, they're just a little bit uh, disconnected from reality. He says, but uh, they said, but now you, they're blaming Moses and Aaron, you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. So that's their perspective. That's their theology about God, that uh, God's just this jerk that had this elaborate rescue plan to lead them into the wilderness to die, right? Like, that's not really a, a great picture of God. And, and yes, God is aware of their needs, okay? Just, just so you're aware. God is the one that designed the human body and is aware that it needs, right, food and water to live. God had planned this rescue mission for more than just the 400 years that they were in slavery. So it's not like God is ignorant of the fact like, oh no, I got these, this new pet and I didn't know I was supposed to feed it and take it to the bathroom all the time. Like God's not some like neglectful, right, pet owner of these people. Not that we're like God's pets, just so you're aware. But uh, in fact, Jesus, when talking about God's knowledge of our needs, he says it this way before talking about the Our Father in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, don't don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again and again, right? He says, don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him, right? God is aware of your and my needs. 
All right, it's not like he's oblivious to these things. He's not surprised by these things. Okay, so God knows what we need. And, and actually, in the context of prayer, what's interesting is God knows what we need, but he still desires that we pray to him. So it's kind of like this interesting thing. Actually, I might even be able to thread a theme with that concept. We'll see if I can come back to it. But God is faithful to provide for his people's needs. He's going to do it miraculously here. And even with the, the rosy colored glasses that the Israelites had, looking back on slavery, it's interesting that God was faithful to provide for their needs even then with like their all-you-can-eat pots of meat, right? Uh, so, so it's cool that God is faithful to provide even through difficult, difficult situations. So let's see, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. All right, so God's going to meet their needs. This is really cool. Now, I want to point out, like, once again, God could have provided any way he wanted. He could have literally just made the food appear in their mouths, right? But God actually chooses to have it rain down where they actually have to go out and get it. They've got a little bit of work to do. Right? God is all-powerful. He's fully resourced. But he doesn't just like literally have it plop in our laps. Right? And that's actually a, a theme that we've even seen with uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, that where God basically creates the world right, 99% complete. He could have just taken it the whole way, but he's like, you know what? I need someone to like, farm this land. Like, I want to include Adam in this creation Process. I want to include humanity in this act of making this world good, right? That God actually, because of his grace, involves us in the process, right? Even in the New Testament regarding like work, right? Paul says that we work as unto the Lord, right? That this work isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Obviously, since the sin and fall of man, it's become toil, toilsome, right? But nonetheless, work is a good thing that existed before the curse. And even when God's meeting their needs in the desert place, he's actually like, well, you've still got to go out and, and get it, right? I'm not just going like, to like pop it right in your mouth like, oh, delicious, right? That's not how God's, God's doing this. <clears throat> and what's interesting is God is interested in more than just meeting the needs, the physical needs of Israel, all right, that's one of these themes that we're going to see here. He says, one of the reasons he's doing this, he says, is that I will test them to see uh, whether or not they will follow my instructions. That one of the things that God does in meeting their needs, and I would say even meeting our needs, is trying to determine whether or not we're going to be obedient and faithful to what God instructs us to do, right? Like that it's more than just meeting our needs that God's interested in. Right? Like, like I said, he could have created any world he wanted. He could have created us with no physical needs where we're just instantly sustained by the power of the sun. or something. You know, like, like he literally could have made us any way he wanted to, but he sets it up in this way where we have to participate in creation. And he's actually interested in more than just meeting our physical needs. He wants us to, to learn from this experience. All right, like uh, yesterday, yes, there was still snow on my deck, and I was like, hey, Rook, how many jelly beans would I have to give you to finish shoveling my deck? All right, like, could I have shoveled my deck myself? Yes, right? But I wanted him to participate in it. I wanted him to learn this lesson about work. I wanted to reward him. He only said four jelly beans, which is a really good deal. <laughs> I actually, I was like, could I get you to sign a contract for like the next 16 years of your life? 
that for like four jelly beans, you'll always shovel the deck? Like, that's, that'd be a really good deal for me. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. I, I didn't make him sign it, just so you're aware. But man, oh, man, when he's like 17 years old and showing him this paperwork, you're like, hey, you signed it. You owe me. Uh, right, but the idea is like, I easily could have done it myself, and yes, I was helping him with it, but right, there was some valuable experience that he was going to get from, from participating in that, and God's actually much the same, all right? So on the sixth day, verse five, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. All right, so, so we see that God is going to provide for their needs, and then he's actually also establishing this concept of a Sabbath day. There's seven days of the week. On the sixth day, they'll have twice as much as they need, and every other day, they'll have only the exact amount that they need. Verse six, all right, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, by evening, you will realize that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, I... We'd like to think that it's only been a month that they should know that anyway, right? But nonetheless, like God persistently is demonstrating his faithfulness to his people, right? God wants them to know that he is the Lord, right? That more than just meeting their physical needs, he wants them to, right, figure out how to follow and obey him and then also to know that he is God, All right, This is really cool. So let's see. Uh, you'll realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, verse 7, in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has ugh, heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. Like, that's actually, that's like a little bit scary, right? Because, I mean, you might remember that back when they were slaves in Egypt and they were crying out because of the oppression that they were experiencing, that uh, God actually heard their cry, their need to be delivered, right? God was aware of their prayer needs, right? Uh, but God not only hears our prayers, but God also hears our complaints. And like God actually perceived their complaints as kind of being against him personally, which is, which is interesting, right? So like makes us think about when life isn't going so well for us and, and we might be complaining about things like how is God perceiving that, right? And you know, just something to be aware of, I think. And so he says, what have we done that you should complain about us? Then, then Moses added, verse 8, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. Oh, that's not great that he's heard all of our complaints, but it's really cool that he's going to provide food, right? What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. And so verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. Uh, there they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud, right? Because God's actually been manifesting his presence in this way where there would be a physical, right, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire at nighttime, uh, the presence of the, of the Lord. And so then the Lord said to Moses, and now God is speaking, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Man, this is like the fifth time we've read God hears their complaints. Uh, not great. So this, their, their complaining is not some prayer by faith asking for God to meet their needs. Right? Their prayer was not, right, give us this day our daily bread. It was like, why did God take us out here to die? Right? Why didn't God leave me in slavery? Right? It was not great. He says, now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, uh, right? and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know 
that I am the Lord your God. And so once again, God is interested in more than just meeting physical needs. He wants us to learn something from that experience. He wants us to participate in it. He wants us to to learn obedience. He wants us to understand his faithfulness. He wants us to know that he is the Lord. Verse 13, that evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. And when the dew evaporated, the flaky substance that, uh, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. And the Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And the word manna, which you might be familiar with, literally means what is it, right? Like that's how they ended up naming this food that God had given them. And Moses told them, it is the food that the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs, right? God was providing as much as they needed. He says, pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. So this is really cool. God's providing their needs exactly as they needed. Everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. And so here's another interesting thing about God's provision is sometimes he provides just enough, just what we needed. Right? It's, it's not like he's, he's pouring out this right, abundance upon us, although occasionally he does, but sometimes he provides just enough. And that's something where, notice, like for these people, every day they had to, by faith, expect God's going to meet my needs tomorrow. God's going to meet my needs tomorrow. And just like expect that God's going to provide for tomorrow needs, sufficient to the day is the trouble they're in. God's providing enough for me and my family today, that when God provides, he provides enough. And this concept of just enough is actually an interesting idea that uh, in Proverbs chapter 30, I don't remember which writer of this proverb it was, but nonetheless, this person says this interesting prayer to God, which I think is quite uh, countercultural for us. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be excited about praying it myself, but it's interesting. Proverbs 30 verse 7, he says this, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. Verse 8, first... Help me to never tell a lie, right? Which actually even like that alone is kind of an interesting side note, but uh, a concept where we as followers of God, we as believers in, in Jesus, right, our heart desires to do the right thing, right? We don't always do that, but, but someone who isn't a follower of God, right, they're not going to ask God, help me not to sin, right? Like that's something that we enjoyed back in that season of our lives, but it's a, it's a cool thing to be able to pray like, Lord, help me to do the right thing. That's something that you and I can pray. All right, so that's the first thing that he prays for. And he says, second, give me neither poverty. Yeah, I like that one. Nor riches. That's weird. Uh, right, like I don't think that's something that you and I would necessarily want to pray, to pray against God giving me wealth. Right, that's unusual. And, and just so you're aware, you can be a godly person and be rich. You can be a godly person and, and not have a lot. We see cases for both in the Bible. 
okay? Uh, In the New Testament, Paul writing to Timothy tells him to remind those who were rich, rich Christians, okay, right, not to place your your faith, your trust in the uncertainty of, of riches, okay? So you can be a follower of God and be rich. It's just interesting that this wise writer in Proverbs is saying, hey, give me neither poverty nor riches, and he explains why. He says, give me just enough to satisfy my needs. Verse 9, for if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? He's actually saying that there would be this persistent temptation for him to forget his dependence on God and to think that he's got his life together on his own, that he's worked his way up to the top, that it's, it's his ability, it's his talent, it's his wealth, right? And he doesn't need God anymore. And so this person in their wisdom is asking God, you know what, like I'd rather just not even deal with that temptation, just give me enough because if I grow rich, I don't want to deny you, right? I don't want to get to the point where I say, "Who, God, who? You, I, I did all of this myself. I built my own kingdom, right? He says, I don't want to forget you are God, that I'm dependent on you. And notice that that's actually playing with the concept of one of the reasons why God was providing for their needs in the wilderness was that they would know that he is the Lord. And it's actually really interesting. I mean, like, like I was kind of critiquing the Israelites almost, saying it's only been a month from them seeing some of the most tremendous miracles in the Bible, and they've already like, right, who, who, who is this God character? Like, did he just take us out here to die? Like, what is this? Like, where is he? Like, what, what's going on here? And And we can critique that, but notice the frequency at which we need to be reminded of who God is, right? That the the Israelites needed every day to experience a closeness to God. They needed to, to see God's faithfulness. They needed to know who he was. That even one month after experiencing a miraculous event, they were already just kind of like doubting God's goodness and even whether or not he exists. And so I just think it makes the case that you and I need to allow our hearts, right, to be exposed to the Word of God every day if we can, right, every day, because we need to realign ourselves to reality, that we don't start thinking slavery is great and freedom in Christ is not, right? Like, we need to realign ourselves to what is true. And so just to point out, like, Right, going a month apart from kind of the presence of God in that way, they were already wandering in their hearts. He says, so, okay, verse 9, let me finish this. He says, and if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. So the, the writer in Proverbs here, he's saying, right, these, these two things kind of in contrast. Like, I don't want to be so rich that I deny my need for you, and I don't want to be so poor that I no longer care about the means through which I provide for my needs that I would sin against you, Lord, right? So it's not saying it's okay to steal, right, if you're poor. It's actually saying, like, that would actually, right, profane God's holy name. Uh, but nonetheless, this guy's saying, he's like, Lord, just provide just enough for me. And we see that that's actually the way that God was meeting the needs of the Israelites in the wilderness. Sometimes he would pour out tremendous abundance on the lives of godly people in the Bible, okay? Just with that, recognize that there's this need that you and I have, right, to have wisdom in how we would experience that wealth, okay? That's what we would need. Uh, uh, later on in the New Testament about God providing just enough. This is really cool. This is one of the ways that God provides. Second Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writing, he says, and God will generously provide all you need. 
And he actually links this to our own generosity, that God meets our needs as we are generous. He says, then you will always have everything you need, okay, right? God provides in the Old Testament and the New Testament everything that we need. And Paul adds this other piece, and plenty left over to share with others. That in the provision that God gives us, he's not interested in merely meeting your and my needs. But every time he gives us something, he's planning on us having some amount to be able to share with others, right? Like, like he's teaching and training our hearts to be able to do more about than, than just being consumed with our own consumption. He wants us to grow in, in sharing with others. Verse 9, he says, as the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Verse 10, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. All right, so he's actually saying that when God meets our needs, he gives us both seed and bread, the means for us to to share and plant that in our generosity, he's saying it's like we are planting a seed. But God, once again, is more than just interested in meeting our physical needs. God's not interested in just providing a harvest that we could be full. He's interested in the seed that he's planting, all right, when he's meeting our needs, is one in which he's expecting a harvest of generosity in us, right? That, that God is who's unlimited in resources, interested in teaching us who have finite resources to learn to not be selfish, Right? This, this is a really cool thing. I want to I point out, once again, God designed the universe. He literally could have made us any way he wanted. He could have provided for our needs any way he wanted to. But he's actually using our experiences in this finite life to be able to learn something about eternity. Right? To be able to get something bigger than just a full belly. Right? That's what God is interested in. All right, back to Exodus, verse 19. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. He's talking about the manna that they'd go out and gather. But, verse 20, some of them didn't listen. I mean, come on, right? Like, if you get this, like, food from heaven, you're like, well, I don't know. I got just enough for today, but maybe if I eat only half a portion today, I'll have enough left over tomorrow. Because God did it today, but is he going to do it tomorrow? Is God going to be just as good tomorrow as he was today? Can I trust this God? Maybe he still brought us out here to die and he's just teasing us with his little appetizer, right? Like, what is it? And so some of them didn't listen, okay? Uh, they're, they're experimenting, I guess, I don't know. Uh, and they kept some until, until morning, but by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. And Moses was very angry with them, right? So once again, they didn't learn to obey and do the thing that God had taught them to do. After this, the people gathered food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. But on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. I actually think it's interesting that Moses and Aaron didn't tell them about the sixth day thing. They were like, let's just get them figuring out the day-to-day piece, right? And then we'll, like, they actually had to go, Moses, why did we get twice as much manna today? What's going on? Right? Like, we demand an explanation. And so he told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest. 
a holy Sabbath set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. Okay, so he's actually building in the Sabbath principle like within their own, right, food provision system. Okay, with, this is interesting. And actually even more so than this. Verse 24, uh, so they put some aside until morning and just as, Mo, just as Moses commanded, and in the morning the leftover food was wholesome and good without maggots or odor. Okay, so they had the food for the Sabbath day. Moses said, eat this food today, for today is the Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. Okay, so we, we keep the Sabbath as unto the Lord is what they were doing. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. All right, so God had actually designed this lack of productivity on the Sabbath day, that even if they wanted to work on the Sabbath day, it actually wouldn't have panned out for them, right? That, that they would have gone out there and there would have been nothing for them to gather, okay? So that's, by the way, not always the case, that once they enter the promised land, they end up having to, right, keep gardens and work jobs and do all of these different things, and the temptation to break the Sabbath would have been greater because, the, you know, you could have been like, I could work one extra day than everyone else and get ahead of everybody else and it's better for me and my own Right, like you might have had that temptation. But here, at least in the wilderness, they, that was hardly a temptation, right? Like it's like, I mean, even, uh, even if I wanted to go out and gather, it's not going to be there. But, verse 27, some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. Right, they're just like, well, just in case, right? Like, I don't know if we can believe this God, right? We got twice as much yesterday, I know, but let's go find out and see if any's there, Right? And so the Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? So God is interested in more than just filling their bellies. God's interested, can we learn to obey him through these experiences? And uh, verse 29, he says, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. So the Sabbath day, this day of rest, was kept holy as unto the Lord, but it was actually God's gift to us. He's like, hey, I don't want you to be working all the time, right? Like, that's, that's not my plan and hope for you, all right? That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day so that there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day, right? Maybe after that first week, they got it. They're like, okay, there's no food on the seventh day, so what's the point of even going to try to get it? So the Israelites called this food manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like honey wafers. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. So that's one serving of manna. That Moses is saying, set this aside for future generations. Now, he's not setting that aside to feed future generations, just so you're aware. That was like one day's ration, okay, of manna. But it's interesting that God wants their descendants to know about his faithful provision, right? Then it says, later generations will be able to see the food that I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. And so verse 33, Moses said to Aaron, get a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. 
then put it in a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. And so God's provision of our needs, once again, maybe you've noticed this theme, is not just about him filling our bellies. God actually wants to use his provision for us to be a means to build the faith of even future generations, right? That God actually wants future generations to be encouraged about his faithful provision, that they'd be able to look back and be like, oh yeah, look at this jar of manna. That's, that's interesting. God, God did do that, right? God really did provide for their needs, right? That God, God's interested in more than just meeting our needs, right? He wants to build faith and not even just our faith, but the faith of future generations. And so, verse 34, uh, Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant. didn't exist yet. He eventually does that. In front of the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. So the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they should settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The container used to measure manna, this is like a little side fact in case you're interested in unit conversion, Uh, the container used to measure manna was one omer, which was one-tenth of an ephah. Okay, so just if you want to try to, you know, try some portioning diet for yourself, that's how you do it. It held about two quarts. Uh, And so, interesting thing, once they entered the promised land, they no longer got manna. It was actually when uh, Joshua leads them in. He has them keep the Passover meal one more time before entering into the promised land. And then like that was the last day that there was manna. They never, never get it again. All right. But God is still faithful to meet their needs. And so, so we see this big story about God meeting the food needs of Israel. All right. God gives them just enough. He does it to see whether or not they would obey and trust him. Right? He does it for building their faith, that they would know that he is the Lord, and he does it so that they would right, save some for future generations to build their kids' faith about God's faithfulness. Right? That's what he does. I'm going to end up skipping Exodus 17, but it turns out that God right, leads them into the wilderness right, further in, and they have no water. I'm just going to summarize this one. You can read it on your own. And uh, God actually, they, they end up complaining again, again, And God tells Moses, all right, gather some of the elders of Israel and take the staff, the same staff that you had parted the Red Sea with in front of everybody. And he says, go over to this rock and strike this rock with your staff. And out of the rock in front of the presence of the elders of Israel, water comes gushing out to meet the right drinking needs of the entire people of Israel. So it's peculiar that, right, God easily could have just had them camp out at these beautiful desert oases, but he didn't. He sets up their provision, right, in such a way that it builds their faith. It's this really cool experience. So, so yeah, you can, like, interpret all sorts of stuff about God's faithfulness to provide for our needs, right, that he gives us just enough for every day, right, that he's going to do that as we are faithful to live out our lives as unto him. But what's interesting is in the New Testament, they actually carry this story even further. That, right, Jesus said that the entire Old Testament is about him. And you might notice we didn't see a lot about Jesus in this story, right? Maybe you noticed that. Uh, But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. So, uh, Toby, I'm skipping a couple passages there. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul, in the New Testament, reflecting back on this 
uh, these events. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers, we read part of this a couple weeks ago, and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In, a cloud, uh, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. Check out verse 3. This is the new one. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, the water that came from that split rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, which is kind of weird, uh, I don't think that necessarily means that rock was like moving around like the pioneers used to ride, you know, Jack from that SpongeBob episode. Yeah, yeah, he gets it. Someone, someone was, right? He's got it. But uh, I think it was probably a new rock every time that Moses would write, get the water to come from. But what's really weird is that Paul then adds this little statement. He says, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Jesus. Now, I don't think Paul is literally saying that but he's saying that this story is supposed to point to the fact that Jesus is the one who meets our needs, all right? That Jesus is the split rock. His body was broken that you and I would experience times of refreshing, as Peter talks about, all right? That as a a result of what Jesus has done for us, he meets needs that are far greater than just our physical needs being met, that Jesus meets this need in you and I that only he can meet. All right, that Paul is saying that when he goes back and reads this story in Exodus, he's like, I'm supposed to get an image of Jesus here. And he's saying Jesus is like that, that rock. All right, and if you think Paul is a little bit kooky by making that comparison, check out what Jesus said in John chapter 6. All right, Jesus replied. This is after he had multiplied loaves and fishes. You guys know that story? Dan, you can color a little picture of it later if you'd like. We'll get one for you from Sunday school. Nice, nice, all right. But right, Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, right? And afterwards, he goes to this other place and a whole bunch of people follow him. And notice what Jesus says, verse 26. I tell you the truth, uh, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Jesus actually was able to identify in the hearts of this crowd that he's like, you just want the food that I gave you. You're actually not interested in what it meant and like this greater thing that I'm trying to give you here, right? That, that some people, just so you're aware, even in Jesus' day, they would be religious merely so, right? They would have this benefit, benefit, this financial benefit, like maybe if I live this godly life, then everything works out for me and it's great. Like, maybe Jesus can just be my sugar daddy, and he'll just give me everything that I want, and that'll be really awesome. So I'm going to live this life this way and just try to work the system and get God to take care of me, right? Like, that's what some people do. It's true, right? Our hearts go there sometimes, just so you're aware. And Jesus knows our hearts. Verse 27, Jesus says, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Right? Don't be so consumed about the things you consume, right? He says, spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. He's saying there's a bigger deal than just having your physical needs met. There's something more that I'm trying to give you, and I want you to understand what I'm trying to give you. All right? He says, for for God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They answered and they said, show us a miraculous sign, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, 
Our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The Scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? They're like, Gee, maybe, maybe we can get Jesus to give us some bread again. How cool would that be? He did it before. You should have been here last week, right? It's so cool. Let me show you what Jesus does. And uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you true bread from heaven. He's saying there's something bigger than just manna, right? We might think like it'd be so cool if we saw God provide for our needs by raining bread from heaven. But Jesus is saying like, no, 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 that's actually not even that cool. God is offering you something far, far, far greater. He says, the true bread of God is the one who, wait a minute. So now he's saying the bread of God is a person, not a thing. The true bread of God is the one who, right, uh, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, sir, they said, give us this bread every day. Like, this sounds awesome. I want this magic bread that gives life to everybody. Actually, one, I, I got to tell this joke. One time, Katie was, was making dinner. She's like, oh, you want me to make some of those Pillsbury biscuits? You know, like some, some biscuits for dinner tonight? And I quoted this verse back at her. I'm like, give us this bread every day. Why would you not make Pillsbury biscuits? Like, if we have them, come on. Give me this bread every day, right? And so Jesus replied, this is what he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, but you haven't believed in me even though you see me. Skipping down all the way to verse 47, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Okay, so he, he's like, he's making that connection even stronger than Paul did with the rock in the wilderness that made water, okay? He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died, right? He's like, that manna only was good for their lifetime, but I'm offering you something far more than manna in the wilderness. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. For this bread, which I offer, right, so I offer so the world may live, it is my flesh. All right, it gets peculiar there because Jesus is talking about like you need to eat my body, which sounds weird. I won't have time to go into that. But he does end up ending and he reiterates the point, verse 58. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. What I want to say is this, that you and I have something better than manna. All right, we have something far greater than just this miraculous provision of food. Right, we have something that can actually sustain us. Right, Jesus is the one who meets this need, this hunger, this thirst that you and I have that nothing else in this world could ever meet, all right, that Jesus is the one who does this. We have something even more valuable to give future generations. Instead of just some bread in a jar that we're going to show them, look what God did, right? We have the true bread to offer our kids, right, that we would let them know the faithfulness of God and how he meets their needs and how he meets more than just their needs on this earth but wants to give them life eternal, Right? We have something far greater than that. Right? More than God's temporary provision, God has provided a way that we could have life and have it more abundantly. 
right? Jesus is saying, this is a cool story about your ancestors eating bread, but all of them died. I offer you something that gives you true, true life. Let's have the worship team come back up. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that the things that the Israelites experienced as you provided for their needs told a greater story about who you are and your faithfulness and the life that you call us to lead. Lord, we also realize that you are faithful to provide for our needs, that, Lord, you're faithful that in your provision you also give us opportunity to be generous. So, Lord, I pray that you would do a deeper work than just filling our bellies, but, Lord, you would change our hearts, that we would trust in you, that we would believe in you, that the true bread that gives life, that we would, as we trust in you, experience the times of refreshing to our souls, that, God, we would just completely obey and follow you, that we would not doubt And that, Lord, we would be able to train up our kids to know you and to know your faithfulness. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do a deeper work in our hearts than simply meeting our needs. But, Lord, we are so grateful for your daily faithful provision. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.